Our text this morning comes from Revelation chapter 22 as we conclude our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this revelation of your son, Jesus, for also the revelation that we see of ourselves, the revelation of your bride and body, the church. We thank you for all of these things. And now as we conclude this study, we pray that you would, by your spirit, lead us into the hope of these promises and in the strength of living in them. So guide us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like, uh, like most families, whenever my family gets an opportunity to spend some time in a big city, one of our favorite things to do is to visit whatever big museum that city is known for. We usually end up in some kind of museum, whether art or history or science or transportation or aviation or sports museums, hall of fames. We love it. We love it all. But I can't ever remember leaving a museum, a great one, I can't ever remember leaving one feeling fully satisfied. There's always this gnawing feeling, this fear that I missed out on something really great, that I missed something important. I didn't read the one plaque that would really pull everything together for me, or I didn't read or see that one artifact. Because in great museums, the truth is you can never see everything. You can't read everything. You can't do everything in one trip. Some of the big museums, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York City or the Smithsonian Museums, they have millions of items in their collections, out of which only hundreds of thousands are ever on display at any one time. And each one of these things, every one of them, is a unique, significant, amazing artifact of culture that deserves your attention. And just beyond that is another unique, significant, amazing artifact of culture that deserves your attention. And if you stop and admire each piece and gives it the attention that it's due, you'll never see everything, not even in a hundred visits. After about an hour or so in a great museum, as much as I love it, after an hour or so, I start to get wow fatigue. Uh, well, that's an amazing one-of-a-kind ancient artifact. Wow, look, here's another amazing, incredible, one-of-a-kind ancient artifact. Wow. And the pressure of time starts to accumulate. You know, you do have to go get lunch or supper. You have other things you need to get to. And so we start racing through rooms and displays. Hey, look, there's a Rembrandt. Oh, look, there's a Monet. Oh, there's an ancient Greek vase. We got to keep moving. We got to keep going, keep going, keep going, because um, you, you just can't, you can't see it all. Even if you spend several hours, the list of things that you haven't seen is longer than the list of things you have. 
And that's the same sense that I have as we come to the end of this study of the book of Revelation. Even though it's taken us 20 months to get here, taking a few breaks along the way, and even though this is the 42nd sermon in this series, I'm still left thinking about all the things that we haven't explored. The list of things we haven't talked about is longer than the list of things that we have. Even at 42 lessons, we really have raced through this book. And we've only gotten glimpses, just samples of the glorious, wild, magnificent images, symbols, and narratives of this amazing book. But I hope that in spite of the pace, you've been able to pick out and grab hold of some of the riches and some of the depth of the message of this book, and that you are inspired to pick up and continue your own study in it. This book should not be intimidating to you. I hope at least we've seen that, that at this book, you shouldn't assume that it's beyond your grasp. As I've said from the very beginning, this book is indeed a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not an obfuscation of Jesus. It's not a covering up of Jesus. It's not a complication of Jesus. It is a revelation. This book is readable and this book is understandable. And I hope that you have seen that. So one last time, let's summarize the whole message of this book from the beginning so that we get the whole thing in our mind. Jesus appears to John, who is in exile. Jesus reveals himself in all of his glory. He has some messages for the churches of Asia. The churches in Asia Minor are stuck between Rome on one side and Jerusalem on the other. Very soon, the walls are going to start closing in on these churches in the middle. And so Jesus has messages for them. Stand fast, be faithful, get ready, deal with your problems. There are people in your church pre preaching heresies. There are people in your churches who are morally compromised. You have to deal with all of them. Use the keys of the kingdom to deal with the false teachers. And then John sees the lamb ascend into the heavens and take up a scroll. He takes up a book. And this is a book that contains all of the curses for covenant breaking against apostate Israel. Israel is idolatrous. Israel has left her first love. Israel has says, we have no king but Caesar, crucify him. And so Jesus takes up the book of curses against apostate Israel, and he starts to take off the seals of the book, the seven seals of the book unleash seven preliminary warning judgments on the land and on the city. And then Jesus unscrolls the book and the seven angels trumpet out the contents of, of the book. There is a demon army that's released in the middle of all this. And that army is defeated by an army more powerful than it. But there's no repentance. There's no revival going on in Jerusalem. They're only hardened. John sees signs in the heavens. He sees a woman, a child, a dragon. The woman and the child are protected and defended. The dragon is cast to the earth where he spews out lies like a flood. He deceives the priest. He deceives the people of the land. He works out this unholy alliance between Jerusalem and Rome through the Herods. We see all this in type and vision and symbol. Then the bowls of judgment are poured out on the land. Time is up 
for Jerusalem and for the temple. The seven angels pour out these bowls of judgment. We see the woman again, the woman who had the son, but now she's not seen as a mother. She's not seen in purity. She is seen as a harlot riding a beast. He's apostate Jerusalem riding the beast who is Rome. Uh, she's overthrown, the beast is defeated, the city of Jerusalem is judged, and the true bride is elevated in her place. All of these things, everything so far, everything that I just said is shortly to come to pass from John's perspective in the first century. These things are all near. These things are all immediate. But then the narrative starts to stretch out for millennia. We have thousands of years inserted into the text. And now we start to stretch it out and see that Satan is bound so that he cannot oppose the advance of the gospel. Satan is bound so that he can't deceive the nations. He can't get them all together and oppose the church together. Uh, he can't craft those alliances anymore. And so the church grows. And after a long period of growth and a long period of success for the church, Satan will be released, we're told. Satan will stage one last rebellion. He'll gather all of his minions into one place. He'll be defeated. They and he will be cast into the lake of fire. Then we read about a final judgment of all things where everyone and everything who threatens joy and life and blessing, everything is sent away into eternal judgment that is wicked and defies God and his son Jesus and his spirit, who reject his spirit. Everything is sent away. And then that section concludes with a vision of the eternal heavens and earth. Then we saw last week, the angel pulls John back into his own time and John sees the heavenly Jerusalem as she is. John sees the church gradually descending from heaven, growing into what she is called to be in all of her glory and all of her influence, feeding and watering and nourishing the nations, healing the earth. That is a summary of the book of Revelation up to this point, up to these few final verses, which give us, as we'll see, a dialogue between the angel and Jesus and John and the bride. They all chime in here at different points to give us the benediction, the final blessings and warnings of this book. Now, uh, as we work through this, you're going to say, I'm looking for some cohesion here. I'm looking for a theme. And it really is, the angel says this, and we got to absorb that. And then the bride says something, and then Jesus says something, and the spirit says something, and we need to just take them each. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to process that. We're just going to go on to the next few verses and see what is said. And at the end, we will work to pull it all together. So beginning in verse 6 of chapter 22. Then he said to me, this is the angel saying to John, he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the thing which must shortly take place. The holy prophets and the servants, that's a parallelism. We're talking about the same group of people. The servants, the prophets are being shown what is going to take place. And then Jesus echoes and Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So the angel says, true and faithful things have been communicated through this book and have been entrusted to God's servants, comma, the prophets. The people who receive this book 
and who are allowed to look into heaven and see what's going on there are prophets. Who is? That's me and you. That's the members of the churches. God has shown through his angels the things which are shortly to take place, which means that we're prophets and the members of the churches who hear this are prophets. We talk about the um, priesthood of all believers and that's a vital doctrine. It's really important to talk about the priesthood of all believers, but it's also important that we understand the kingship of all believers and that we also understand the prophetic office of all believers. What happens on Pentecost, but that we're all, the spirit is poured out on all of us and we're all made prophets in addition to being kings, in addition to being priests. Well, Jesus is our priest and king and prophet and we're in him, he is our head. And so all of those functions and all those roles and all those gifts and all those duties are ours. So now we've been told by this angel that these visions have been communicated by the Spirit to the church, and the members of the churches now are Spirit-filled prophets who've been brought into God's heavenly council chamber to see how things run in heaven, and now to communicate that and make application on the earth. There's a promise of blessing. Jesus says, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Those who honor and obey and protect and keep the words of this book are blessed. This book has shown us how heaven runs and it's our duty to make earth match heaven, make and reshape and form earth to match heaven in whatever sphere you have influence, your home, your institutions, your church, uh, your, your life, uh, your, your business is modeled after how things run in heaven. Here twice, in just these two verses, we see that key principle. The angel says, these are things which must shortly take place. And then Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. Your study of Revelation and your study of the entire New Testament is going to go way off course if you ignore the imminence of these things that are prophesied and the first century fulfillment of these things. We saw it from the very first pages of Revelation, how often these are things which must shortly take place. The time is near, the time is at hand. And now as we close the book, we get these reminders. These things, um, all the way up to the, uh, the, the judgment and the overthrow of the harlot city, Jerusalem, these are all very near things from John's perspective. Verse eight, now I, John saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that for I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets and those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This is the second time that John has mistakenly fallen at the feet of an angel to worship him. And he gets rebuked for it. Back in chapter 19, verse nine, <clears throat> Um, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are, who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these things are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the second time that John is overwhelmed in the presence of this amazing being, this angel that he sees. This is the second time that John falls at his feet, overwhelmed by what he sees. 
And this is the second time that the angel rebukes him and says, don't worship me, worship God. Well, why not? What, doesn't, doesn't the psalm say man was created lower than the angels? Absolutely. But now in the ascension of Jesus and in the unfolding of the work that we've seen in Revelation, man has been elevated over creation. Even the apostle Paul says, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Whatever that means, it means that we have been elevated to a higher position than we were before. Uh, one, uh, one, one writer said, the most important teaching of Revelation is that Jesus has ascended to the throne. And the second most important teaching in Revelation is that we have ascended with him. You see, because we have been uh, uh, brought up and we have ascended with Christ over creation, we don't bow down and worship angels. Uh, maybe we're in awe of their wonderful, mysterious, incredible power and majesty, but even the angels say, don't worship us, worship God. Uh, leave, that, leave that worship and allegiance for the Lord Jesus. Don't worship me. And so that, that lesson is brought up again so that we don't miss that. Our ascension over creation, which we've seen in, in Revelation. Verse 10, the angel is still speaking. And he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Don't seal this up. What you have been given, John, you need to broadcast it out. You need to preach it and proclaim it and write it and get it out there. Now, that's the opposite of what Daniel was told to do. At the end of the book of Daniel, God tells Daniel, seal up the book because the time is not near. Daniel was told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Daniel lived about 600 years before John saw and heard these things, before John wrote Revelation. So the events that Daniel sees are some of the very same things that John sees, but they're way into Daniel's future. They're 600 years into Daniel's future. So God says to Daniel, you can read them, you can consider them, you can contemplate them, but these things are far away. Daniel, don't, don't think like these things are about to happen. They're not around the corner. John, however, when he is shown these things, John is told to spread it abroad. Don't seal it up. Blast it out as a warning and blast it out as an encouragement uh, to all the churches of what Jesus is about to do because, what does the angel say? The time is at hand. Now, if um, God told Daniel to close it up because eh, that stuff is 600 years away, but he tells John, the time is at hand, doesn't that indicate that the things that, that Revelation shows us, once again, are very near to John's day? That's just another um, support for this hermeneutic that the things that we read about in Revelation were very near to uh, the day that they were written. The time is near, not far away. Verse 11, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Now, this book is a revelation of Jesus and an unveiling of who Jesus is. And as the revealing light of Jesus shines on all the earth, we get another revelation. We get a revelation of humanity we get this question, here's who Jesus is. So in light of that, who are you? Uh, who do you belong to? Which side are you on? Because this Jesus 
is going to be, and, and he's currently reigning over all the earth, and he's going to be the victor in time, in history. Satan will surely be defeated. That truth creates a differentiation in the world. Everything then is black and white. There is no neutrality. There's no fence to ride. There's no middle ground. You either belong to the kingdom of life or you belong to the kingdom of death. You either are in union with the bride or you're in union with the harlot. And now after hearing these things and seeing all of these things, if you aren't convinced and if you don't repent, at least acknowledge who you are. That's why the angel says, uh, let, let him who is unjust be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. Just admit it. Just say, I am filthy. I don't want to be robed in righteousness. I don't want to be cleansed. Uh, let him be unjust. I don't want to be justified. I want to stand in my own works on the day of judgment. Say it. Own it. Uh, be bold, go ahead and stay wicked if that's who you are because the day of reckoning is coming. The day of judgment is so near. Time is running out. The day of the Lord is coming and you are going to be left with your decision. We occasionally run into the sentiment in the church that we as Christians in the church should never ever say or do anything that pushes away unbelievers. That um, we, we should never do anything to make them feel uncomfortable, but rather do everything, everything, that no matter where they are, we've got to build a bridge to where they are and make sure that we don't ever say or do anything to turn them off or to push them away from the truth. Now, I want to say, before I say anything else, I'm all for building bridges and building relationships. You know that more and more, I am actively engaged in that effort of building relationships and finding pathways into our community every day. And you know that my desire is for the church to be that bright, attractive, glorious, feasting city that we saw last week. 100%. That's what we are and what we want to be. But the reality is that there are those who are chronically unrepentant. There are those who openly embrace death and ignorance and rebellion and don't want anything to do with Jesus. And there comes a point where you say, okay, stay that way. You see, if somebody rejects uh, the gospel or is offended by our preaching or doesn't like what we have to offer, it doesn't point, it doesn't mean there's a defect. It doesn't mean that we've been too mean in preaching the gospel or telling the truth. It means that for some people, there, there's no desire whatsoever to take what's being offered. Every single prophet preached repentance and every single prophet was met with resistance and every single prophet had a message that hardened certain people in their audience. It happened to Noah. I mean, he only had eight people on the ark. Could have been more, but everybody else was hardened. Uh, Moses, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Jesus had those who, who, who left him, whose hearts were hardened. That's what prophets do. Prophets divide. And they set a line that says, you're either with the Lord Jesus or you're against him. There's no neutrality. Well, here's, this is what the angel is saying. He's setting that dividing line. The window is not closed for repentance, but it's closing quickly. And so you better get on the side of the Lord Jesus. You better repent because you're going to be left outside if you don't. This is a warning. This final warning. Verse 12. 
Behold, I am coming quickly. This is the Lord Jesus speaking up once again. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. When Jesus comes, he says, I am rewarding those who uh, do my commandments. I am blessing those who do what I say. I'm rewarding everyone according to his work. The rewards that he brings when he comes are, you, are, are distributed according to obedience. The message of the gospel has never been about simply saying a prayer, working out some formulaic prayer that you know kind of rings a bell in heaven and gets you a uh, fire insurance for eternity. It's never been about um, in making a one-time profession of faith and you're good to go no matter how you live or what you do. The gospel has always been about trusting in Christ, resting in his works completely, trusting him fully, which produces a continuing life of repentance, obedience, and confessing the name of Christ. It's that kind of faith that the Lord Jesus is looking for when he comes. It's that kind of faith that he expects. This very same John wrote in his first epistle, he said, whoever says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So the, the, the call is that you must obey. You must obey. And those who obey, Jesus says, have access to the tree of life. We're no longer separated from life. We're no longer cut off from the sanctuary. There's no longer any cherubim with flaming swords keeping us from the tree of life. Jesus is our tree of life and we eat freely from his benefits. We have full access to him. Secondly, Jesus says the obedient have access to the city. We have the life and the communion and fellowship of the new Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, remember last week, the kings and the rulers of the earth were coming in the city and they were bringing all their treasures and all their wisdom and all their glory with them into the city. Now, Jesus says that those who do my commandments are in my city. Does that not mean that the nations will be discipled, that the nations will be obedient, that they will come in as believers? That's who is on the inside, verse 15, who's on the outside. But outside are dogs and sorcerers, and sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Not everyone is spared. Not everyone is rescued. Not everyone is saved. Um, God gives people over to do what they want to do, to love what they want to love. Um, I, this, this last few chapters, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but there's, once again, if you haven't heard this yet, this, this, uh, there's this creeping... Uh, 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 teaching that somehow, in some way, everybody gets redeemed and everybody, everybody spends eternity with Jesus, irrespective of where they, whether they've confessed their sins, whether they've trusted Christ, everybody, er, everybody gets resurrected to life. That's universalism. And it's, it, I, I keep hearing it from the weirdest places, places I wouldn't expect to hear that. Last few chapters of Revelation oppose that teaching entirely. We get to the end over and over, we see that there are those who are outside. There are those who have refused the invitation, so they live outside. Well, you don't want them in the city. The, the, the city is hospitable, but it's not a completely inclusive city. 
The city is not an infinitely tolerant city. To go into the city, you have to have your robes washed. You have to follow Jesus. If you don't, you stay outside. Who is he calling dogs, though? I mean, we read that list and we say, okay, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. But outside are dogs? Who is he calling dogs? Well, both Paul and Peter call Judaizers dogs. Who were the Judaizers? Well, they were the ones who tried to mix the gospel with Jewish cultural traditions, who tried to pull churches and Christians back under the bondage of the oral law tradition of the Pharisees. That's who Peter's talking about when he says a dog returns to its vomit. He's saying they're going back to something less than Christ. They're going back to, back to dragging the church back under the tyranny and the, and the, and the, the, the tedium of the, old, of the old oral law tradition. And that's what Peter's talking about. Uh, Paul says in Philippians, he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. What's he talking? He's talking about the Judaizers. He's talking about those people who are preaching a false gospel of submission to those old ordinances and not to Christ. And this is a declaration that Jesus will not tolerate that in his city, among the other things. He deliberately calls them out and calls them dogs. Verse 16. Oh, by the way, that's also a, a cue for the churches that he's writing to to not tolerate that either. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Back when we started the study of Revelation many, many, many moons ago, eons ago, when we started this study, we had just wrapped up a study of the Song of Solomon. And when I opened the study, I started to see the Song of Solomon everywhere in the book of Revelation. Now as we get to the end, we see it again. It's hard to ignore. In the Song of Solomon, the bride continually calls for her mighty bridegroom. Uh, the Song of Solomon is this poem between the king and his bride, and their, their expressions of love for each other, their longing for each other. And it's, a, it's symbolic of the love and the relationship between the Lord Jesus and his bride, the church. And so she calls for him and she wants the presence of her beloved and she bids her mighty bridegroom to come in the Song of Solomon. And here at the end of Revelation, the bride now once again calls for her beloved to come to her. Uh, the bride joins her voice with the voice of the spirit. The spirit and the bride say, come. They call for the coming of the king. So what we've seen is the bride has been elevated to join in the operations and ministry of the community of the Trinity. That the spirit and the bride both say, come to the king. They say, come to the son. And she calls with one voice to both Christ and to the one who thirsts. Doesn't she do this? She says, um, uh, the spirit of the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let them take of the water of life freely. So, so she invites Jesus. She says, I need my beloved. I need his presence. I need him to draw near to me. I need his blessings and his life and his sweet communion. I need his nearness. I need his presence. Come. But then she also calls to those who thirst and says, those of you who thirst, those of you who need life, who need light, who are 
languishing and ignorance and death and darkness, you need to come over here too because I got somebody for you to meet. As he comes, she calls them as well and they meet in the middle in the church, in her communion. She brings Christ together with those who lack uh, uh, order and life and salvation. He has the water of life. They thirst. They're brought together in the church. She calls both of them and his coming is not dreadful to her. She doesn't put it off. She doesn't say, wait a little while. Because she knows he's coming, and when he comes, he's going to shake things up. He's going to set things right. I mean, she's seen him in this book. He comes with a robe dipped in blood. He comes riding a white horse. He has a sword. He comes to set things right. But the bride is not intimidated by that. She doesn't worry about what's going to happen. She says eagerly, come to me, come here. We need you now. Oh Lord, come. You may have heard prayers before that ask God, uh, we, we, even so Lord, come, but not yet. Oh Lord, uh, delay your judgment just a little while longer. Lord, give us more time to sort things out. Lord, uh, give us more time to call people to repentance. But that's not what the bride prays here. That's not what the spirit prays. And that's not the prayer that you see in the Psalms. What do we hear in the Psalms over and over? We hear words like this. You are my help and my deliverer, O Yahweh. Do not delay. <laughs> Come now. We need you now. Don't wait any longer. We hear phrases like this in the Psalms. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. So the spirit and the bride say, hey, we're done waiting. We, I mean, you take as long as you need, but when you're ready to come, we're ready for you. Don't delay any longer because they have nothing to fear and they want his work to be done on the earth. Verse 18, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. This is a sobering and solemn warning, and one that I've kept in front of me throughout this entire study. Don't add to this. Don't take away from it. Be careful. And so I, I want to always come to the scriptures with this attitude of submission. We don't stand over God's word as judges, we don't stand over God's word as critics. We come to it as students and disciples. We submit to it. I don't want to add anything to it. Anything that I added to God's, what would that be? That would be useless, frivolous. It'd be, it'd be silly. I don't want to add or subtract anything. And I hope you notice every Lord's Day, after I read the text, I say, thus far the reading of God's word. What I've just read is word for word. I haven't left anything out. I haven't added anything. Thus far the reading of God's word. Now I'm going to do my best to explain what I think God's word is teaching us, what I think we need to hear out of God's word. But I want to be clear that that was the reading of God's word. And now I'm doing my best to explicate it. I'm doing my best to explain it. Um, because of this warning, because of this, because of this very real fear of adding anything to or subtracting anything from God's word. And of course, this warning stretches out over the whole of scripture, not just the book of Revelation. Don't add anything anywhere to any part of God's word. Don't take anything away from it. We don't, we don't pick through the Bible disregarding what we don't like, 
throwing away what we disagree with, what we don't want to obey, we submit ourselves to the whole, to the whole Bible. We want to be whole Bible Christians. I, I don't want to ever just camp out in one section of, of, of the Bible or just a few chapters here or there. In fact, even for this long study, that's why I took several breaks is because we're trying to give you the whole counsel of God's, of God's word. In a few weeks, we're going to pick up a new book and we're going to study it word for word all the way through. We're going to study the whole thing together because we want to understand everything that God says. We want every word. We don't want to skip over anything. This is why that we follow a schedule of Bible readings on the Lord's Day, and we have long sections of, of, of reading Scripture on Sunday morning, uh, because I want you to hear, even, even if I'm not preaching in Mark's Gospel right now, you heard Mark's Gospel this morning. And even if we're, it's going to be a while before we study 1 Samuel, you heard something from 1 Samuel this morning. We sang the psalm. It's why I take our young people through surveys of the Old Testament and the New Testament, because again, we are looking to be whole Bible Christians. We want to hear everything that God has to say to us and see all the things he's revealed to us. Here's the curse. To remove something is to be removed. To add a word is to add a curse. Neither are permissible. Both are prohibited. Rather, read it, receive it as it is and give God thanks for it. Let's, let's conclude the book. Last two verses. Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The, the, the book began with a Song of Solomon-like love poem describing the beloved head to toe, just like we see in Song of Solomon. And it ends with one more call from the bride to the groom, hurry up, come, don't delay. And he says, surely I am coming quickly, which is how Song of Solomon ends. Within just a couple of years of John writing this, the Lord Jesus is going to take up the book of curses. He is going to start taking the seals off. Judgments are going to start falling on the land of Israel and on the city of Jerusalem. And so these amens, these blessings are the agreement of the bride that everything that is about to happen is good and necessary and right. And so here we have the benediction to the whole book. We have the blessings and the promise of a future for the church. Now, at the beginning of our study, one more thing I pointed out is that the book of Revelation is arranged like a worship service. On the Lord's Day, we have a call to worship. We confess our sins. I open God's word. I read it. We trumpet out God's word. We eat at the Lord's table. And then there's a benediction, there's a blessing. You're sent out with a blessing. That's an outline of the book of Revelation. John is called to worship. Jesus reveals himself to John and John is called to worship. Immediately then we have to deal with sin. There's sin to deal with. Just like we confess our sins, there's sin to deal with in the churches of Asia. Jesus deals with all those sins. And after sin is dealt with, we have the song of the angels they sing, holy, 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 a trumpet blast, and John is called up into the heavenlies. Well, what do we do in worship after we confess our sins? We don't have a trumpet. We got an organ. We got a piano. There's a blast. We sing, holy, 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 and we, send, we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We're ascending into the heavenlies. The book is open, and that's the longest section of Revelation where the book is opened and the book is applied and the book is trumpeted out and the contents of the book are given. Well, that's the longest section of worship is where the book is opened and the contents are trumpeted out. And then in Revelation, what happens after the book 
is read and applied, we have a marriage supper of the lamb. And at the marriage supper of the lamb, all kinds of things are sorted out. Who do you belong to? Where are you going to spend eternity? Who, uh, whose are you? That all gets sorted out with the marriage supper of the lamb. And then finally, we have a benediction, which we just read. So this heavenly liturgy that we have just read about in Revelation is applied every Lord's Day when we come together. It, it all gets worked out in this dramatic earthly liturgy. And we see in Revelation that when heaven and earth meet in worship, the world is transformed. The world is changed. Whenever the church gathers in worship, just as we see in this heavenly worship service in Revelation, the liturgy has political ramifications and consequences. This worship service that we just read about in Revelation is a challenge to Herod. It's a challenge to Caesar. It's a challenge to say, you've got a higher king that you must bow the knee to. You must obey King Jesus because all empires and thrones and crowns and kingdoms are his. Now we pick that up and we carry it forward every Lord's Day. Today, you're saying there's no higher king than Jesus. He's king of my week because I've given him the best part, the first part of my week. I started the week this morning and I gave him right off the top, the first hours the first part of the day. Jesus is king of my life. I've given him everything. This is what happens when God's people gather and ascend into the heavenlies by the spirit to present themselves before God in worship. The earth is shaken. The earth is changed. So that means what we do together today is not irrelevant. It's not meaningless. It's not, and it's not something we do just because there's nothing else better to do today. It's not, it's not to check a box or to or to convince somebody else that we're a Christian. When heaven and earth meet in worship in Revelation, what happens? When heaven and earth come together in worship before the throne of God, fire falls from heaven. Tyrants are cast down. The righteous are delivered. The cries of the martyrs are vindicated. Precious and true things are protected. And everything that brings sorrow is banished. Everything that brings darkness and pain is dealt with. The wicked are judged. The light of the gospel shines. The nations are fed and watered. Good things flourish when earth and heaven meet together and engage in worship. So now the influence of Jesus grows and grows through his people, through the church. The gospel goes out with great success. The heavenly Jerusalem gracefully, gradually descends, filling the earth with her glory until the whole earth is full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and the nations come to her for wisdom. That's the story we get in Revelation. That's the picture of the kingdom. That's the picture of the church. That's who we are. And now, having gotten this perspective in us and getting this book in us, now, as you watch the world come apart at the seams around you, as you watch the world unravel every day, where everything becomes more and more insane, where you think, that's got to be a joke. Oh no, they were serious. Oh no, that's for real. As you watch that with this book in your head and heart, you say, oh yeah, I get it. This makes sense. I know what's happening. I know where this is going. Worlds die. I get it. Ages end. Kingdoms collapse. 
And yet the kingdom of Christ is unshaken. In fact, she's made more glorious because she plunders the empires of man. As I said repeatedly last week, the house of God is built on the spoil of his enemies. Therefore, we live and worship and plan and work and play and feast and build like conquerors, not like the defeated. We build like conquerors who are spoiling the kingdom of Satan and who are good at it. We are here for the long haul. Your children's children and your grandchildren's grandchildren are going to be blessed by the work that you're doing now, by your faithfulness. They are going to build on the foundation that you have laid in your life. That's why we train up our children as soldiers of the cross. There's a great summary in the book of Hebrews. In fact, it's almost like Paul at the end of Hebrews writes a summary of the message of Revelation. In Hebrews 12, He's just been talking about the voice that thundered about Sinai. And he picks up in verse 25, Hebrews 12. He says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. That's what we've seen throughout the whole book of Revelation is God thundering from the heavens, trumpeting from the heavens, whose voice then shook the earth back at Mount Sinai. His voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised saying yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. The heavens have been shaken and will continue to be shaken as the events of revelation unfold. So I not only shake the earth, but also heavens. Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The things built according to the world's pattern and blueprint, the things built according to the flesh and the demented, perverted designs of the wicked, those things are shaken and they fall and they don't remain. Yet those things which are built according to heaven's blueprint, those things remain even though they're shaken. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And that's what we've seen in Revelation. Our God is a consuming fire. He is warmth and light to those who are in Christ. He is a, a consuming fire of judgment to those who are not. And the question of the angel remains, then he who is unjust, let him be unjust. He who is filthy, let him be filthy. But he who is righteous, let him be righteous. And he who is holy, let him be holy. That's the call of the book of Revelation. And that's a call to us all. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this book and we thank you for the way that you have directed us through it by your Holy Spirit. We ask you again to strengthen us with this hope that you have given us in this vision of your church and of your kingdom. Father, may we walk in its light all of our days and may we never doubt or fear your love for us or your victory over the nations in time, in history. We look forward to this being revealed more and more in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.